0: Okay, so we're both chill out. Not the first time we've heard that. I'm Charlie Sohn, a screenwriter and journalist. I'm Agnes Reese, a pop singer and songwriter. And this is Mysteries of the Euroverse. On today's episode, we're talking politics in Eurovision's modern era. First. We deep dive into how the EBU, or European Broadcasting Union, has approached politics at Eurovision after the year 2000. Then we talk to Mohamed Fazla, who escaped Sarajevo under
1: siege, dodging sniper fire in the dead of night to become Bosnia's first Eurovision contestant.
0: Finally, we sit down with comedian Jeff Hiller, who helps us find the deeper meaning in Eurovision's novelty numbers, the game we're calling, is that a political message in your pocket? Or are you just happy to see me? We
1: take a look behind the scenes At all the scandal, songs, and queens So come along as we traverse All the mysteries of the Euroverse All the mysteries of the
0: Euroverse. Magnus, we are back for another episode of Mysteries of the Euroverse. Yes. And I will say, I'm really excited. When Charlie says that, we are going to be talking politics. To those of you who uh, did not hear our first politics episode, first of all, how dare you? Yes. Um, But um, if, uh, let's say, you have a life, what these two episodes are, is they're an examination of this idea that Eurovision is an apolitical Competition, right? It was founded in the aftermath of World War II, and because of that, everybody decided to put politics aside and just enjoy the music. And in fact, even though episode one covered a lot more years
1: since it brought us up to 2000, that's actually the part of Eurovision's history that is not
0: explicitly apolitical. This really blew my mind. 44 years of Eurovision history happened before any mention of the competition being apolitical was written into the rule book. I think I got an all caps message from you the day you realized this. You're like, Did you realize? I think you get an all caps message from me <laughs> once a day.
1: <laughs> the interesting thing is that in, in many ways they had a lot more freedom to play with this before the rule came in.
0: Yes, one problem with this apolitical rule which was instituted in 2000, is it's kept the EBU from being able to justify its actions, right? Because the EBU can never be like, oh, we didn't choose this song because it's pro-fascism, but we let in this song because it's not. Everything has to be like, oh, well, this song was political and this song was apolitical.
1: Eurovision was maybe becoming a little bit more commercial yes, uh, and trying to be a little bit more on the side of entertainment, and maybe politics didn't serve the purpose of entertainment as well.
0: Pretty much shortly after the EBU starts conceiving of Eurovision as an apolitical festival, Europe starts changing. In 2008, you had the global financial crisis. We've moved from this period of stability to a Europe where right wing authoritarianism is on the rise. And the great irony of this is like that was the situation that, in certain ways, Eurovision was founded to deal with. Right. Because, I mean, there's a certain element of
1: coming together that means stating values, meeting in the middle, hearing you out, hearing me out, that these were the things that had been missing. We're back at a time where it's needed again, and maybe if the rule wasn't there, it could have just naturally spun into being that again. We understand this is not easy. For a competition that has navigated being around some really, really intense conflicts, trying to maybe throw a little bit of cool water on it, there's definitely merit in that. Oh, yeah. So
0: that the thing doesn't collapse. They're decisions that the EBU is making, no matter what they put in the rule book. Right. And so it's like, what we want to do is talk about how maybe those de- decisions can become a little bit more explicit. Yep. So we, the audience, can evaluate them and be like, is this what we want from the organization we support?
1: This episode will be structured around... Uh, four countries in Eurovision who have you know, been at the center of conflict and how that has played out in Eurovision, Azerbaijan, a largely
0: a- authoritarian regime, And related to Azerbaijan, there's Armenia, right? Armenia has its own relationship to the apolitical rule in terms of the EBU's discomfort with acknowledging the Armenian genocide. And then you have Israel, who were kind of able to use the EBU in Eurovision for political purposes
1: because the EBU are not able to actually take a stand. And that's regardless on which
0: side you stand on. Finally, we're going to get to Putin's various acts of aggression. We're going to end that segment with a little bit of hope. Though the apolitical rule is still on the books, we might be moving into a new era of Eurovision. So the first country that we're going to deal with is Azerbaijan, who entered the competition for the first time in 2008. A year later, police in Baku, you know, the capital of Azerbaijan, started hauling people in, for interrogation, Azerbaijani citizens, were identified as having televoted for Armenia in Eurovision. So to say that again, because it's insane, <laughs> yes. the Azerbaijani police were interrogating and detaining people based on their Eurovision votes. That's kind of maybe one of the biggest threats to the integrity of a competition you can
1: have. Oh, yeah. It's like when we talk about democratic elections in countries where people go, yeah, technically there was an election. Yeah. But if you voted for the wrong person, you would just get killed. It's like that's
0: not an election. Even though they discussed banning Azerbaijan for three years. The ultimate decision was to fine the country or fine the delegation 2,700 euros. That in and of itself is a fine decision, but it's the context for some of these other decisions that the EBU made. This is where it's very important that in the Eurovision rulebook, a country in good standing that wins is offered to host the next year. So then in 2011, when it should be said they would have been not in the competition under a three-year ban, Yes, Azerbaijan wins, which means that in 2012, they hosted. And the competition in Baku really was an endorsement of a really brutal regime. In order to build the stadium, Azerbaijan bulldozed homes of low-income people and just forcibly removed them.
1: 2012 is the year Lorene. Wins for the first time. When Laureen got to Azerbaijan, uh, she, she met with human rights activists in yeah. Baku. The Azerbaijani government did not like this. So I just want to read a quote from Azadlik, which is an Azeri opposition newspaper. She said, Human rights are violated in Azerbaijan every day. One should not be silent about
0: such things,
1: which is a very interesting quote. Knowing what the rule... Yeah, of... <laughs> given that the EBU is being
0: very silent about such things. The government of Azerbaijan hit back at Lorraine. Ali Hasanov, who was the head of public and political
1: issues department at the presidential administration, this is what he said. Unfortunately, there are some attempts of politicization. The musical event cannot be politicized. He literally basically took out the EBU rulebook...
0: And smacked it in Lorene's face. <laughs> yes, and given her nails, um, that was <laughs> well, a very say, risky move. Didn't have them back then. How those nails! That's true. <laughs> yeah. That's true. The EBU did not stand up for Lorene. The EBU did not release any statement clarifying that they stood on the side of meeting with human rights activists. They kept quiet because, of course. Eurovision is apolitical. There's not a doubt in my mind
1: that they don't think that Azerbaijan did not handle all of this correctly. But it's this ironic
0: thing of how they managed to tie their own hands. Yeah, it's, it's insane. Just- when you think of how hands-off the EBU essentially was at Azerbaijan, to see how hands-on the EBU is with this Armenian song, that was originally called Don't Deny, right? Don't Deny is about the Armenian Genocide. During World War I, the Ottoman Empire killed a ton of Armenians and drove others out of their homes. This is a fact. There are EBU member countries who refuse to acknowledge the genocide, one of whom, for obvious reasons, is Azerbaijan. So when Don't Deny, this song about an actual historical thing happened, was submitted as Armenia's song, Azerbaijan protested. And the EBU stepped in, under the apolitical rule. So Don't Deny became Face the Shadow. Yes,
1: that, we'll say Don't Deny still stayed in the lyrics of the song. Yes. But it, it was no longer allowed to be the title of the song.
0: And, and the idea really was to obscure the fact that this was about the genocide. Right. It is hard to make value judgments, but you can't escape making value judgments. You can right. only pretend that you're not making value judgments. Right. And that, I think, is a really good uh, transition to Israel. Right. So in 2018, Israel wins the competition. Yes. And
1: so in 2019, Israel is hosting the competition. Um, initially,
0: they announced that it was going to be hosted in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is disputed territory, right? right? The idea that in the middle of a territorial dispute against the backdrop of the U.S. having made the controversial decision to move the embassy to Jerusalem, for Israel to come out and say, we're hosting this in Jerusalem, that's a bit of a provocation, I would say.
1: Even if you took the disputed territory out of it, F- even for the host nation to announce without the EBU, the city, that yeah. alone could be a provocation. In this moment, at least, this is not so much about Israel-Palestine, which, right. of course, is a very uh, heated uh, and difficult subject to talk
0: about these days. The EBU does not select Jerusalem as the site of the contest. The contest is hosted in Tel Aviv. For context on how these cities are selected, yeah,
1: the way things normally work is... The host nation, they get applications submitted, and they normally narrow it down to two and submit to the EBU who picks. I can imagine conversations behind closed doors where someone said, there's no way we're letting them host it in Jerusalem. There's a way we can make that decision so it doesn't ruffle any feathers.
0: This kind of gets at the heart of what the problem is, right? Because, sure, the contest was hosted in Tel Aviv, right? It was scheduled on the anniversary of the Nakba. This is the date when Palestinians were expelled from their homes to make way for Israel. It's a very, very sensitive anniversary. At the same time it's scheduled then, Israel is using Eurovision, much in the way that Azerbaijan did, much in the way that Franco did in 1969, to sell itself to the rest of the world, which means it's cracking down on protests, right? Because that doesn't look good. In between acts, there are what are called video postcards. They reset the stage while you get
1: some beautiful scenery of the country. Of the host country. And, and, and it's also one of the many things that are seen as a positive of hosting. It's way. a commercial for the
0: country. There were several postcards that featured illegally annexed territory as part of this advertisement for Israel. What is the EBU by being a political well, telling the rest of the world? They're saying, look at Israel. It features this part of the Golan Heights. Regardless where you stand
1: on who that territory belongs to, for an apolitical organization to allow that being presented as Israel, that is very political. The EBU said, there is no intent with this material at politicizing a strictly cultural entertainment event. That's not the reality. The Interval Act that year was Madonna. Madonna ended up featuring an Israeli flag and a Palestinian flag on two dancers who were embracing hand in hand. She was
0: punished for that. The only message there is one of peace, right? right? Iceland's act that year, after their song, pulled out a Palestinian flag and waved it. This was in violation of Eurovision rules. But to just sort of contextualize it, I don't know if you remember that 2,700 euro fine that (laughs) Azerbaijan got for literally detaining people based on their Eurovision votes, adjusting for inflation. We're talking about 3,100 for authoritarian behavior, 5,000 for waving a Palestinian flag. Now again, maybe there's a logic to this, but the EBU doesn't articulate it because they're, they're quote unquote apolitical. You could argue that they know that this
1: competition has survived almost 70 years because Anytime it could have been on the brink of falling apart, they've managed to just hold these pieces together. If that's the argument, that you don't want to drive all these broadcasters away, they appeased Israel in many ways. And the result later is that Netanyahu threatened to pull the public broadcaster,
0: and as of such pulling them out of Eurovision. Right. Basically, what Netanyahu has tried to do is essentially politicize the media in Israel. Despite the fact that Eurovision indulged Netanyahu, he's not an ally of Eurovision. He's not an ally of the project. It brings us to Putin's Russia. In
1: 2009, Russia hosted the competition. Stefan and the three Gs had a song called We Don't Want to Put In. If I say it fast, it sounds like we don't want to
0: put in. Okay. Not a paragon of lyric writing, but this was Georgia's entry. And this is after the Russo-Georgian War. And they submit a song that is basically saying it would be really nice if this authoritarian got out of our country. And for the EBU, that was political, right? Right. So this song gets rejected under the apolitical rule. In 2015, the Georgian song was a song called Warrior, which was a a song that was pretty clearly a protest against the continuing occupation of Georgia by Russia. So literally the exact same issue, six years later, now Eurovision and the EBU are ready to talk about it. I would like to believe that that's progress. 2016 1944 by Jamal wins. There's a famous story of these Russian prank callers, radio hosts, who got on the phone with the EBU general director and got her to admit that she was just made aware of 1944 too late, and had she heard the song, she would have rejected it.
1: Because Jamal wins in 2016, yeah. it means Ukraine is offered to host in 2017. Yes. Now, the artist that Russia ended up picking was an artist who had performed in Crimea. Yeah. Post-annexation. According to Ukrainian law, that's illegal. There is no non-political choice here. And they ended up making a choice of
0: threatening Ukraine, essentially. This is where the story becomes hopeful for Eurovision, at least. What we've talked about, right, is the EBU lets in Jamal's song, maybe regrets it, But then it becomes associated with this huge moment where the winner of the contest is essentially singing a song about being expelled from Crimea. In the way that Donna International and then Conchita Wurst changed the way people viewed Eurovision in terms of LGBT rights, I think Jamala did that. Directly after Putin invaded Ukraine in 2022, the EBU did release a statement saying, look, we're in a political festival, we don't get involved in this. But there was enough pushback from the individual member broadcasters that I think a day after that, okay. two days after that, I, I think the EBU reversed course. Several countries threatened to pull out. When they said that Russia would not be participating, I believe the quote was, we don't want to Putin."
1: I was not sure where you were going with that. Oh, my God.
0: Similar to what happened with Jamala, where the identity of the festival changed when she won. 2022, where Kalush Orchestra, because of the televote, just dominates, right? Yep. It's the highest televote that a act has ever gotten, right? And Kalush Orchestra, for those of you who don't know, was the Ukrainian act that year. It really became this sort of moment. And... Eurovision then was associated with, I don't know what to call it, if not political. And I think uniquely so, especially because
1: the UK hosted in Ukraine's stead. It was very important to them that we are hosting this in their
0: stead. In addition to their British host, there was a Ukrainian host. There was a multimedia dance piece on the Eurovision stage that very frankly acknowledged the war. Literally images of bombed out buildings. It was designed to speak to the war in Absolutely. a way that Eurovision hadn't. So that that gives me a lot of hope. And yet, the, the rule is still on the books. Without having rules that you can apply consistently, we're just waiting until the next conflict, and it's going to be open to interpretation whether the EBU is treating that conflict the same way as Ukraine.
1: If they had a pre-existing rule about we don't host in disputed territory, it would be very easy. Right. Like You you don't have to make a decision on where you stand on the disputed
0: territory, but we just don't host on disputed territory. Yes, I think we're both on a certain level arguing for a more explicit Eurovision in terms of both allowing individual artists to not be censored and wanting the contest itself to stand up for what it calls its stated values. Not just like, we don't want any songs that are going to make the competition look political, right? What's beyond the pale? This is hate speech, right?
1: right? We can see how used you are to having American television. When you would get like a five-page thing where it's every word you're not allowed to use, every body part you can't show. But, but I see the value in it. Exactly. No one can be like... Oh, the uh, only time you we just... police
0: that word is when a person of color says it or exactly. when a gay person says it. The other element of this is transparency of process. Having a sort of open governing body tends to be a a good way to handle these things, right? If you want
1: the ethics of your vision to be more clear or or you want to be able to work on it going in a certain direction, step one is to understand how those ethics work. Yes. Is it the
0: the employees that make these decisions? Is there an ethics board? I think that is a great place to lead this conversation.
1: I agree. Okay, so next we're going to be talking to Mohamed Fasla, who escaped Sarajevo under lockdown and scaled a mountain in the snow just to make it to Eurovision and deliver a message. He's now a senior official in the Bosnian government.
0: It's really a wide-ranging conversation uh, where we cover how the structure of the Bosnian government, which originally was designed to give each ethnic group, Serbs, Croats, and Bosniaks, a voice, uh, we're going to talk about how that has left Bosniaks without power in their own country. Uh, is at the forefront of trying to reform the system, so it resembles a more neutral, civic democracy. He's also working hard to bring the country back into Eurovision, a particular challenge given the structure of the Bosnian government. Then we're going to sit down with Jeff Hiller, who really is, like, a brilliant comedian. Um, If anyone has not seen somebody somewhere on HBO, it's a great show, and he has a starring role in it. Um, But Jeff's going to help us separate Eurovision's politically subversive camp from the ridiculous in a game we're calling. Is that a political message in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? But first, let's listen to some of Fasla's 1993 Eurovision song, all the
1: pain in the world.
0: We are here with Fasla, who represented Bosnia in 1993 with the country's first Eurovision entry, All the Pain in the World. He is now a senior official in the Bosnian government. Fasla, welcome.
2: Thank you guys for the invitation. And thank you for the opportunity to remember what was happening 30 years ago.
1: What was your relationship to Eurovision growing up?
2: It was very popular in the former Yugoslavia. I happened to be neighbor of the guy who represented Yugoslavia in 1973, Draug Kutrooč. I was, what, six or seven years old when he was representing Yugoslavia. So from that point on, Eurovision was important in our social life. You've been a professor, you've
0: been a politician, you've been a musician and artist. Um, How early did you know you wanted to be a a musician? Was this a, a childhood dream? It
2: was solely by accident, to be honest with you. I was playing football and I had a pretty good social life. So I had the opportunity like, to know the big stars in the Balkans. Usually on after parties, you know, I would sing a song or two. And then they start, you cannot joke around anymore. <laughs> it's not enough to be a football player or, or fashion show model. You got to start thinking about this seriously. Step by step, I was kind of dragged into it. So uh, my Eurovision song, The Whole World's Pain, was my second song I ever recorded. Oh, really? I was really lucky. Like, first song that I recorded was present to me. From Hari Matahari, Layla, 2006, and Dino Merlin.
0: Right. Who also wrote All the World's Pain with you, right? That's right. Yes.
2: I was really fortunate enough to know those guys, and they were willing to put together good song for them. So.
1: All the Pain uh, in the World is such a powerful song. So can you talk about the process of recording and rehearsing it while your country was being attacked?
2: In Sarajevo, we had so many artists and we kind of decided we're gonna defend our country with what we do the best. We explained in the form of song how we felt at the time. So we had so many people writing the songs and trying to record in order to support our army, to support our people, to endure the worst aggression since World War II in European soil. We were talking about this phenomenon of divided families. So many people had at the time, girlfriends, wives, kids. We started developing that story. Basically, I think the only place with with electricity was hotel. And we went to that hotel because it had electricity. I think we made Demo probably in a couple hours.
0: So you win the national final, right? And then the next step is the qualification round. And you have to get out of Bosnia. Sarajevo's under lockdown.
2: As you know, Sarajevo was under the siege longer than Stalingrad in Russia during the World War II. So it was very really difficult. The only way you could break out of the city was to run across the airport runway. Basically, we kind of used deception. We knew that Serbian uh, forces are watching some competition. So what we did, we recorded some competition day earlier. So let's say we recorded Friday night, we knew I won. So during the broadcasting, we were running across the runway. So it was really muddy. It was really dangerous. The night that we were running across the runway, I think six people got killed and 17 wounded. It was really difficult because United Nations forces wouldn't let you. Really? No, they wouldn't, you know. Their mandate was uh, to keep the airport under their control and not allow any forces to run across. Since it was really muddy and snowy, I lost my shoes right away when I started running. I mean, I believe it was late February or early March. I, I had to climb the Mount Enigma, which is pretty steep and, and, and high. I think it's about 1700 meters above sea level. So basically I made it to the Mount Enigma Therefore, Incredible, but adrenaline was so high that I didn't even feel it. That's how pumped up I was. We got captured in the city of Mostar by the Croatian forces, so they kept us in the Mostar for a couple of days. What was it? What, I mean, what was it like being detained? Everything after Sarajevo looks like a Mickey Mouse. You had electricity, <laughs> you had water, you had food. Emotionally, you become numb to things like that. So I wasn't scared. I wasn't afraid. I know I'm. Eurovision Song competition Representative, All The whole world is going to know. But I mean, you know, it lasted for a couple of days. They let us go. So then we start getting wardrobe for the competition. Literally, I was mad. Other national representatives, they had their dancing lessons and stuff. I mean, you know.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the, the Croatian delegation kept trying to undermine you, yeah?
2: They wouldn't give us any point. We are representing exclusively Muslim side. So basically... Muslim power in Bosnia is green. And I had a green jacket and the chief of delegation of Croatia was telling me please go ahead and sing in that jacket. It goes great with your eyes and everything else. So after I finished singing, we had a press conference. First question for, for Croatian journalists was why did you sing in a green jacket? So I said, because I was so confident we're going to win this competition and we are going to Ireland and I know Ireland country of green.
0: Good thinking on your feet. Yeah, that's actually, that's, that's a very smart way to turn it.
2: Everybody knew what was she trying to accomplish.
1: And you mentioned the Croatians not giving you points, but before that, there was also sort of a uh, an attempt at a vote trading offer.
2: They were asking us, let's work together. They were going to give us maximum amount of points. We're going to give them maximum amount of points. From our side, we didn't have any problem giving them 10 points without any agreement. You know, we thought they had a good song and we're going to award them with 10 points. So they said they're going to do the same to us. So at the end, they didn't give a of point. Can you
1: talk a little bit about what it was like in Ireland? And can you talk about the iconic moment when you turned your back to the audience? What did that symbolize to you? And was that always the plan?
2: It wasn't always the plan. When we first started thinking about whole concept of our presentation, we're going to represent our situation as we see it from our point of view and our main goal was just to bring our story to the living rooms of such a large audience. As we saw how Europe created Bosnia, that basically was my idea to show to Europe how how bad it is when somebody turns back to
0: you. The situation in the Balkans seems to be getting a little bit more worrisome. We primarily are speaking to an American audience on this podcast. And I think the impression initially was that Bosniaks were happy with Joe Biden's election, uh, both because it got rid of Trump, but also because of Biden's history in getting arms to Bosniaks during the war. But the impression that I get is that the administration has been a bit of a disappointment.
2: I have to be very careful here because I'm senior advisor for Bosnian President. Yes, I better make sure. Right, right. Audience understand that I'm not talking on behalf of him. Yes. On behalf of myself, Joe Biden was a great champion during the nineties. Thirty years after that, he is my personal disappointment because they are trying to explain to us what is good for us.
0: I think the thing that our listeners might not be familiar with is that there are three presidents, right, in Bosnia and they're divided along the ethnic lines.
2: That's right. One has to be from the Croat population, the other one has to be from the Bosnia. Right now we have a pro Bosnian Croat in the presidency, but Zagreb is not accepted his election result because as they said, he's not legitimate Croat.
1: Bosnian Serbs, Bosnian Croats, and Bosniaks each vote for their own candidate. You hear that, you might think that these are similar size of people of the country, but it's not. And I think many attribute the vulnerability Bosnia has to the fact that Republika Srpska has the power it does within the country.
2: 1995, Bosnia signed peace agreement with Croatia and Serbia, which stopped the war. This agreement was basis for a new government So up to 2010, Bosnia had certain progression that we were all happy with. But recently, meddling of Croatia and Serbia, we are still under aggression, just it's a different form of war.
0: So just to talk about some of that aggression, you have Vucic's administration making noises about a greater Serbia, which for our listeners is similar to Putin's idea of a greater Russia. It basically means territorial expansion. Right. And then within the country, you have the Republika Srpska, right? They have been also making noises about unification.
2: They're making noises about secession.
0: Yes. This structure has existed for a while. Why are the tensions bubbling up now, do you think? Because this seems to reflect a broader issue in Europe. You have very aggressive actors like Putin. Even in the Balkans, you had the Montenegrin election. What do you think is going on? where we had a time of relative peace, and now it seems to be spiking again.
2: Global picture is different. I think Europe is trying to be kind to Serbia because they are afraid they're gonna go completely on the Russian side. They know that Serbia is, for a long time, for two centuries, always on the Russian side. They didn't even impose sanctions against Russia.
1: What kind of reform do you think is necessary?
2: What we are doing right now, this type of government, European court saying it's illegal. European Union is asking us to implement 14 points. We said, let's do it. Then we would have civic state and we would be a normal country like every other country in Europe. To
0: bring it back to Eurovision, this tripart structure has been part of the reason that Bosnia has not been back to Eurovision.
2: It's the only reason, actually, why we are not going to Eurovision. Government, they don't want to finance. They are happy that we are not. Competing the Eurovision Song Competition because they are assuming if Croatia is there and Serbia is there, Serb ethnic population will pull and cheer and identify with the Serbian national song, and Croats, ethnic Croats in Bosnia, they will identify with the Croat national.
0: They're trying to prevent Bosnia's national identity. Yes, precisely. Yep. <laughs> this is like also a place, though, where I wonder if the EBU could be helpful. Bosnia is a democratic country that's the product of the values that, that the EBU talks about, individual self-determination, freedom, and the forces against you are the forces that the EBU says that they don't like, right? Territorial expansionists, warmongers. Um, has there been any conversation about the EBU providing financial help if these funds are really locked up by Republika Srpska and and, and the Croatian?
2: reason why I'm doing what I'm doing at this point, is to open up that conversation. That's going to be my task, and we'll see how far we'll we'll get there. I'm going next month to Paris, then afterwards, I'm going to Germany and Slovenia, so I'm going to open up some conversation.
0: We are very excited for Bosnia to return to the competition, particularly given the success that the country's had. But I think there's probably a broader reason why you're dedicated to bringing Bosnia to Eurovision again. Edward Said has this idea of the right to narrate your own story. Who gets the permission to tell their story and who doesn't? And he was talking about Palestinians, but I think it also applies here. When I think about your journey to Eurovision, it really is about your journey to tell the story of of the bosnian people and i think last time we talked you used the phrase uh far from the eyes far from the heart right um if people can't see what's going on they won't care
2: you know how powerful media are yeah right now going to revision some competition is uh good effort to represent in the best possible light. and we usually we don't think about war, we don't think about oppression we don't use your vision song competition or Exclusively social coding. we mostly sing about love and the majority of our songs during the war were about the love under the impossible circumstances.
1: I think in America, Eurovision is often thought of as like a campy, silly competition. Uh, but the history of the contest features so many moments like your performance, you know, where Eurovision almost acts like a public square, bringing voices that need to be heard to a broader audience. In, they did a really great job in Liverpool featuring Ukrainian voices and focusing on the conflict. They also released a statement this past contest saying that they were declining allowing Zelensky to speak. So how do you think Eurovision and the EBU should navigate situations like this?
2: Politicians shouldn't be speaking at Eurovision really Song competition. Nobody can articulate the nation better than our mind. And if you go back in history, we learned about so many nations through the artwork. It's a good decision by EBU that Zelensky shouldn't be speaking. Yeah. But I think Ukrainian artists, they have plenty of energy and creativity to portray for the rest of the world exactly what they feel and how they feel and what should be done in order to make them safe and happy.
1: Any final thoughts or messages you want to leave our audience with?
2: We just want to have a country like it's yours. We're just asking for Europe and the United States to help us out, just like every other normal country in the world.
1: When Bosnia is back in Eurovision, I can't wait until the hosts say, and to read out the points from Bosnia, we're going to turn it over to Fosla. Because I think that would be the way to bring it all full circle.
2: Probably I'm going to be with delegation there. Okay, Uh, there we go. Perfect, even better.
0: I think that's the perfect place to end. Fazla, thank you so much for this interview. This has been really, really great. No, it was fun. We are here with a very special guest. Jeff Hiller is a fixture of the New York improv and comedy scenes, and has been on TV shows from Thirty Rock to The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt to American Horror Story, and most importantly, his starring role on HBO's incredible show Somebody Somewhere. Jeff Hiller, welcome. (laughs) <laughs> so, Jeff, what are your impressions of Eurovision going into this? And there are no wrong answers. Okay, so I know ABBA. There are no wrong answers, but that is a right answer. Yes. <laughs> and I
3: know, like, my friend Amber really loves it, and sometimes she'll, um... I don't
0: know, so to talk about it. <laughs> And we can... So you listen very carefully to Amber's stories, is what we're hearing. I mean, she was like,
3: maybe I'll start a podcast about... So. Eurovision.
0: Everybody listen to Amber's podcast about Eurovision. I hear it's great. At think she ever
3: got around. it. That's running her own successful business. Yeah, she's, yeah that's good. Good. she's
0: now sponsoring this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's running a successful business. Leave the podcast to the rest of us, please. <laughs> so, Jeff, if you had to describe what in your head is a kind of like typical Eurovision act. Well, I feel like
3: when I've seen it, it's like a set from American Idol, but the lighting is much
0: more 70s in my mind. The contest has been running since 1956. Oh, wow. That's a fact you can use. Yes. But is it a Snapple fact? It is not. Snapple facts-wise, I have to say, that was where I think I was on the verge of becoming a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> We're all like buying the Snapple so we can learn something. It was pre-Wikipedia. Everyone wanted facts. Everybody was turning it's to pre-Wikipedia. Snapple. Pre-Wikipedia. It's like, I'm fine just buying a Snapple, but yeah. if you're going to give me a fact,
3: let it be a true fact, Well and there's some that are like, wow, that's really crazy, I can barely believe that, and then it's like, well, you, should, well, you shouldn't, not it's true. not
0: true. A lot of people, when they think of Eurovision, they think of camp, right? They think of these big, over-the-top numbers with nonsensical lyrics, very often puppets. Um, <laughs> where did the puppets come from? We don't know. What gets dismissed as novelty at Eurovision,
1: a lot of the time, is actually trying to communicate something deeply meaningful.
0: After all, some of the most difficult subjects are better tackled with humor or metaphor. What can seem wacky and nonsensical can become much deeper and more meaningful with proper context. something I've tried to explain to many men in my life. (laughs) So today, we're going to look beneath the surface of these poor, neglected songs and figure out which ones have something more to say and which ones are just empty nothingness. So the game is called, Is That a Political Message in Your Pocket? Or Are You Just Happy to See Me? So here are the rules. We're going to play you a clip of a Eurovision song, and then we're going to read you the deeper meaning hidden in the song. But these meanings are very Snapple fact-like. Half <laughs> of them are not true. So up
1: first is going to be Donatson and Cleo, who represented Poland in 2014 with We Are Slavic. <laughs> <laughs> That's really
0: yeah,
3: nose yeah. <laughs> <great>. <laughs> Oh my god. Okay, there's a woman washing laundry with just the biggest, <laughs> biggest gazangas. <laughs> she's churning butter and it looks very. You know that it's a <laughs> sketch when she's like, mm-hmm. pink shirt nose <laughs> This woman knows. Oh, they're speaking English. We know how to use our charm and beauty. <laughs> okay. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the churning butter, even the cameraman is like, I don't think we can show this. We're in Europe, for God's sake, but still. All
0: right. So, Magnus, do you want to let Jeff know um, what potentially is the deeper meaning behind this yes. song? Yes.
1: The performance is actually a sly, ironic parody of the way the rest of the world sees Slavic people. It was also a subtextual rebuke of right-wingers in Poland who wanted to use an imagined cartoonish history to wield as a weapon against those who don't fit an image of the traditional Eastern European. Make Poland great again. (laughs) Gosh. By sexualizing the farm girl, for instance, Donaton and Cleo sent the message that gratuitous sexuality is not merely a product of modern society, but has been around forever
3: needs to learn that. <laughs> so Your grandparents like to bang too. <laughs> hey, that's why I'm here, baby. <laughs> I mean, she's more than busty. The shirt is ripped open. Mm-hmm. Her breasts are, I think, heaving.
0: <laughs> I mean, representation <laughs> matters. <laughs> um,
3: honestly, I think this is real. I don't know if I agree with it,
0: but it sounds real (laughs) to me. You are 100% correct, Jeff. (laughs) Next we've got um, Vampires Are Alive, Switzerland's 2007 entry.
3: Okay. It's very Lestat. Yes. Oh, very 80s. Okay, she bought like a scrunchie at Duane Mm Reed that has hair on it. I like lyrics that are just blatant I am a vampire Oh, okay Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> The choreo is everything yeah. But here's the good news I could do it <laughs> <laughs> The dancing I, I can't describe it It's so not good, <laughs> <laughs> not good.
1: I think that's a great description yeah, yeah.
3: It's like when you watch Drag Race on the first episode And they have to make up their own choreography For the, <laughs> the big group number and it's just like full-on box stuff. <laughs> the mohawk guy is like deigning to do this choreography. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. But the girl with the lion mane hair, she is like, in a- I'm committing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how strange! There's like a mannequin in the back with a wig that you would get on 34th Street. <laughs> also, the lead singer is a little bit like along in the tooth compared to everyone else. Yeah, And I do I knew- have some sympathy for him for that.
0: Charlie, explain the potential deep meaning behind the song. So this actually, this number was one of the first LGBT rights anthems in the Eurovision Song Contest. It's chorus asserting that legends will survive and we will not be undone. references the AIDS crisis. <laughs> and the use of vampires as a Wait, metaphor. What chorus? It's the We Are Vampires chorus. But it does then go on to say, legends will survive, we will not be undone. You know, the use of vampires as a metaphor for those in society who are demonized uh, was considered incredibly powerful at the time.
1: Is that a fact or a stable fact? <laughs>
3: the thing about the vampire thing, yeah, specifically in reference to AIDS, is, I would say, problematic. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> vampires, of course, feast on, on blood. blood and yeah. HIV is a bloodborne transmission. That's a little weird today.
0: Yeah. Also, On the other hand, vampires... it is Eurovision. Right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Are these all gonna be true?
0: <laughs> oh. oh, what the hell? Sure, it's true. This one was total bullshit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the song is actually about vampires and how they're alive. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god I almost died That makes more sense That brings us To
1: the next one So now we have a song Known affectionately As The Dustin the turkey song Which represented Ireland In 2008 I'm hearing a Febreze commercial (laughs) That's part of the song Another one of our sponsors
3: that's the turkey You know how like On Project Runway They'll be like I question your taste level (laughs) Which I'm like Taste is subjective But Uh, This is objectively bad. It's like a gold LeMay dress with like a shocking orange to yellow ombre feather boa with a huge showgirl style feather headdress with the colors of Ireland's flag. And then green opera length LeMay gloves I mean what if it means something though (laughs) (laughs) oh she's like committing so hard poor thing poor thing poor thing as an actor I do have sympathy for people when they're like and then at the end just like really stay in it (laughs) (laughs)
1: like I also respect that she that she she she... was just like okay okay Okay, but the meaning but the meaning So Ireland's cheeky call to reform our industrial food system featured a turkey named Dustin who called out the countries, Ireland included, whose factory farms were known for particularly aggressive abuses. The song was an instant camp classic and led to a European ban on coops that allow for less than four square feet per chicken. I say true. Final answer. Final answer. Locked in. (laughs) Not true.
0: that was
3: really smart. I was like, this is so stupid, but that... Actually makes almost sense. A certain amount of sense. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was really good. That was even better than the vampires with eight. Oh, good. Yeah. You know what I should have known was the issue. Four feet. There's just no way.
0: Four feet is a lot. Well, so and apparently, farmers the, are apparently the average chicken coop allows between three to five feet per chicken. Maybe the chicken is like two feet of that. <laughs> it's like they're four feet wide, but the chickens are real flat smushed down. They're like, oh, three. Yes. Do you remember when they, some scientist had come up with a way to make Either square watermelons or square tomatoes. Yeah. So it was I like, you it was could pack the, yeah, you could pack them better. Uh, uh, oh my God. Maybe that's what they're doing for chickens oh now. Oh, no. <laughs> how terrible. Okay, so. <laughs> Back on track. Back on track. We are now moving uh, to Latvia's 2008 number, Pirates of the Sea.
2: We are taking it all tonight.
0: They bought their costumes at Party City.
3: <laughs> oh, she kind of looks like Eartha Kit. <laughs> That is Eartha (laughs) Kitt. Can you imagine (laughs) how the mighty have fallen? (laughs) The fabric of her blouse is like so obviously flammable. (laughs) Like do not stand near a candle. Mm
2: -hmm. This
3: is so like musical theater.
0: It's musical theater by way of like Disney Orlando, right? Yeah. yeah, Yeah, touche. Except
3: for Disney Orlando... This isn't Disney. This is like
0: they made that carpet fly
3: in Disney. Yeah, exactly. This is like uh, California Adventure Land or something. And California Adventure, I think, is Disney too. It's California (laughs) Pizza. Again, though, the choreography is (laughs) terrible. (laughs) The choreography was decided upon last night. (laughs) Oh God, he just lasciviously grabbed her butt and then like did a weird tongue thing to the audience. The woman who kind of looks like a young Sandra (laughs) Bernhardt (laughs) I'm looking directly to camera, and she's singing, but you can't hear her, she's just like,
0: I love the pitch for this song. All right, so Eartha Kidd and Sandra Bernhard are pirates. (laughs) We've got $3 to costume all of them. All right, what what
3: crap are you trying?
0: to? Okay, Charlie, take it away. So Latvia's entry into the European Union came with imposed taxes and austerity measures that left the country struggling. Pirates of the Sea was a metaphor for how global trade was wrecking the Latvian economy. The song became so associated with protectionism, actually, that conservative British activists staged a group sing-along to the song in the lead-up to Brexit. You think about, like, the January 6th shaman. Yeah, yeah. Like, they really, <laughs> they like this stuff. Yeah. They're into it. But I do feel like if we were actually making
3: a comment about global trade, they would get better costumes.
0: <laughs> but I well, guess that's... Latvia was poor,
3: Said true true? Now the other one's true.
0: So this was false. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was false. I know you knew it, and I could see it on your face, and I I, I, say I didn't know one, how to I, help you. The chicken one, I was like, I that one is this one. Chick- the specific
3: about leading up to Brexit, people singing it,
0: that's... Uh, yeah, why would you put that in unless it was true? Yeah. Or unless you're, like, really overthinking things. Which is what I did. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which brings us to the next one. In 2007... Verka Serduchka represented Ukraine with Lasha Tumbai. Okay, more choreography. This is a drag queen, right? Yes. What country is this? Ukraine.
3: Ukraine. Oh.
1: That's not her natural hair.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the joke is that there's a disco ball on her head.
1: <laughs>
3: oh, Nessie, they're doing a little jump rope. Oh, I feel sorry. I don't think you can do this choreo. Don't do it.
0: First, the choreo's too easy. No, no now it's well, too-
3: the choreo is very easy. <laughs> I just don't think she can do it. <laughs> what year?
0: Uh, two thousand seven.
3: Oh, okay, so this is before. I bet they're not entering now, of course. Oh,
0: they are. They offered to host it.
3: Oh, really? Yeah. yeah.
0: Because they won last year.
3: Oh wow! Did do you think they won on merit or on political?
1: All art has to be seen in the context of the current time. Listen, I, I have no,
3: I have no investment in the yeah. integrity of Eurovision. <laughs> if they want to give it to whoever, I don't care. <laughs> I feel like these two backup dancers are actually kind of good. By the way, I don't know anything about dancing. So why am I so angry <laughs> about great. this? No, I love
1: li- <laughs> No, this is Jeff's audition to be a judge on so you think you can dance. <laughs> I would be so not good. Raising their flags. Not
3: even from Ukraine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they're like, I didn't, no, bring? They're, they're like, fly. I didn't bring one. There's
3: yeah. <laughs> clearly <laughs> <laughs> a French flag and a Swiss flag flying really
1: hard. Yeah, but okay, do it. It's hard to bring 26 flags to one performance. So you yeah, just flag just just
3: whatever you, you know. have. And That, by the way, is my new life advice. Fly what you have.
0: Although, actually, that's the opposite of the self-help book I need. I need the one that's like, no, actually show up prepared and, like, do the right thing. (laughs) I'm like, already. Yeah, I'm already way too comfortable flying whatever I have. So, so Magnus, would you like to tell us about uh, Verka Serduchka's performance? The real point of
1: controversy was the hook lyric, Lasha Tumbai. The band insisted that it merely meant milkshake in Mongolian. (laughs) But upon further research, it was determined it was not true. And the words were chosen because they sound, when sung, like Russia goodbye.
3: Yeah, sure. True. Correct. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, because now when she performs it, she sings Russia goodbye a lot of times, right?
3: Yes. Yeah. But also, it's just so funny that they were like, uh, it's Mongolian for um, milkshake. milk you know. I right Famous Mongolian milkshake. <laughs> <shit. laughs> <laughs> international competition, doesn't anybody be like, "Well, wait, I
0: speak Mongolian." It was it was 2007, said, like, pre-Google. Right. pre, pre- pre-Google Google. Pre Google. Translate. Yeah, yeah. Okay, oh. hey, hey, so this is uh, Let Three's "Mamas." Will you repeat the name of the song again? "Mamas." <laughs> <laughs>
3: Oh, that's a film of them. <laughs> oh, what a reveal. <laughs> okay. That guy's clearly just like learned how to dance for this.
0: <laughs> Why am I so angry? At no, the I know. About? It's choreographer to the stars, Jeff Hiller.
3: <laughs> I
0: know. It's just like, oh,
3: he's dressing in a like <laughs> but with a uh, Freddie Mercury look. I know. Also, what a style of reference.
2: Hitler means <laughs> Freddie Mercury. Oh, yes. yeah.
3: I also do not believe they did like a makeup test before today, (laughs) like like they were like, and then just put some eyeliner on, keep going. (laughs) And maybe more will make it better. Oh, I do think, well, keep the, I think
0: going is the general aesthetic. I also think this is where it's so important now. Well. <laughs> yeah, well, this is my this is my favorite musical part. Well, this feels pretty Mercury. This feels kind of fucking City
3: Yeah, it's sung poorly. I kind of like his coat though. I love the costumes. I have to. Say. And um, also the video production. Oh, <laughs> oh, they've stripped. They've stripped. Oh, they're fully.
0: No, they're not naked. No, they. Your ambition did not allow them to. But they do like to perform naked. They, as a band, they do perform naked quite frequently. Okay, these
3: guys are freaks. (laughs) I mean, I'm into that. They're not dancers and they're not singers, but they do seem like artists.
1: (laughs) Oh my God, that's their poster. Oh my God, we're not dancers, we're not singers, but we're artists. (laughs) That's
0: my career.
3: This one? Yeah. No, this one I like.
0: Oh, good. Because I, I do really like those. Like, the pirate stars. one is the one. That oh, the pirate. No, the pirate yeah. one. Well, I want to support the Latvian economy and yeah. I want yeah. them to maintain Wait, their that independence. One was a, that was the right? Yeah. 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 Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so this song, whose repeated lyric is Mama Bought a Tractor. <laughs> uh <laughs> <laughs> refers to the time that Lukashenko, a dictator of uh, Belarus, bought Putin a tractor for his 70th birthday. The anti-war protest song is from a well-established Croatian punk band whose previous act of protest was building a giant golden statue of Angela Merkel taking a shit. I believe this! You are 100% correct. They performed naked um, in public in uh, in Croatia and were... Arrested for public indecency. Their argument is that they were actually clothed because they were wearing um, corks in their asses. <laughs> I think I've heard of these guys. <laughs> <laughs> they show up on a lot of my oh, Google searches. I'll tell please, you that. Right. Yeah. Well, please. I mean, Jeff. What have we learned today? <laughs> I think I kind of know what egregious means. <laughs> <laughs> you know
3: what? This is retrospect, of course. Yes, but like. The disco ball and these guys. Yeah. You can tell, like, they really cared about. What yeah. Yes. Yeah. Was the, I wouldn't have known the one about the, the ladies with the big boobs. I mean,
0: was. I will say that is a number where the artists are very upfront about what they're trying to do. And, and yet there are still a lot of people who are like, bullshit. Okay. Well, Jeff, thank you so much you. for being a part of this insanity. And we. Hope to have you back on soon for our uh, choreography episode.
3: Yes. (laughs) Well, you better be impressive. You better be impressive if you're coming on the world
0: stage. That's true. Well, Magnus, I think it was another successful episode.
1: Thank you so much to our guests. And tune in next week for Eurovision and Contemporary Pop. We're going to explore the contest's relationship with pop music over the years and examine how changing Eurovision
0: rules affect the kinds of songs that come out of the contest. Then we're going to talk to 2023 Slovenian entrant Joker Out, a pop-rock band who very much represent the contest's more pop-oriented side. Uh, Their song Carpe Diem was a huge hit at the contest, setting up the band for international success and a collaboration with Elvis Costello. We love Elvis Costello. He's my favorite Elvis. It's funny because
1: he's my favorite Costello. (laughs) of it. That one we might keep. (laughs) Finally, we sit down with Broadway's Tully Leung, known for his incredible voice. Tully is not only a musical theater star, he's a professor of vocal technique. Uh, We're going to dive into vocal performances at Eurovision and talk about how Eurovision artists achieve the necessary vocal punch to put an act over the top.
0: Also, if you're listening to this uh, when it comes out, Come join us on Thursday, January 11th at Rise Bar in Hell's Kitchen at 8 p.m. for our big coming out party. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to be featuring some uh, Eurovision covers from some of New York's best performers. Uh, They're going to be trivia games and also a very special edition of Eurovision Tops and Bottoms. And you know who's also doing a Eurovision cover, Charlie? I already included you in some of New York's best performers.
1: (laughs) Anyway, we hope to see you at Rise. And, of course, at future podcast episodes.
0: Until then. Until then. Happy Happy Eurovision.